Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. Are you going to try and settle that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? Oh, Will your parents want to? The savvy entrepreneur to the rescue. Congratulations. That really turned out well. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Hey, good morning out there. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting live on WLCB 101.5 FM. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I am a self-professed crazy entrepreneur myself. I love helping other entrepreneurs, which is why I'm here. My passion is to share what I've learned and to find other experts and entrepreneurs to also share their advice and insights. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses over the past 30 years, and I've also helped or started to help at least nine different businesses. And oh boy, I have made lots of mistakes along the way. As always, I welcome your comments, your questions, your suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about, a challenge that you have, or someone you know that would be a great guest, maybe you even, please reach out to me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Our topic is protecting intellectual property, something that I suspect a lot of businesses either don't think about or don't spend enough time focusing on, particularly in today's era of technology-laced kinds of products and services. And you may think if you don't have a patent, you don't need this, but I think you may want to hold on and just take a listen because... Intellectual property covers a lot of things, and I suspect your business probably has some. So I am going to get Eric on the phone. He's joining us by phone today. Hi, Doris. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for joining. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate it. My pleasure. So I have to do the quick introduction here. Sure. Eric is a former in-house legal counsel with Accenture, which used to be Anderson Consulting, for those of you who haven't kept up with the times, I guess. He's practiced in technology and IP fields, IP meaning intellectual property, since 1985. He was also formerly in-house counsel with Baxter Healthcare, as well as a lawyer in the prominent law firm in Chicago of Wildman Harrell. Eric assists IT vendors, consultants, and their customers with a wide range of IT, software services, internet, and e-commerce transactions, as well as data privacy and general business issues related to intellectual property. He's also the author of numerous articles and a former radio person himself, right? Mm-hmm. As well as, I believe you told me at one point you had a regular column I'm, I don't remember the publication, but a regular column where you answered people's questions on technology issues as well. Yes, that was that was around the turn of the century during the during the tech boom. So I've been practicing in this area a long time, and assisting tech companies and whether vendors and 
the users of their products and services in any type of business with regard to trademark protection. I think this is an issue that not enough businesses pay attention to. But before we get started, I just want to say thank you for agreeing to be on the show today. So welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you very much. Eric, how did you get started in this business? I mean, was it an accident or was it some, something in particular that attracted you to the, well, the world I, of intellectual property and technology? I have always been interested in, in computers and what is now called information technology. And my father worked in data processing since I was about uh, seven years old and actually started an organization, I, I think the first in the country, that helped hospitals grapple with the available technologies that were just emerging and which ran on mainframe systems to help hospitals organize patient information and financial data and essentially introduce computers and information technology to healthcare. So uh, I remember going to work with them on a Saturday morning and sitting in a, uh, a giant air-conditioned, always cold computer room where there were IBM mainframes with tape reels spinning, and they probably had about as much computing power as maybe your cell phone and my, and my cell phone put together. <laughs> so, <laughs> but, I'm gonna, so I'm going to date both of us. So I'm guessing that there might have been some of those old punch cards Around the office, yeah, which which my mother used to take and make into wreaths, fold up and make into wreaths, which was popular at the time. So I'm really dating myself here. Well, that's okay. You know, dating oneself usually means uh, there's a lot of experience involved. Yes, like (laughs) fine wine, right? Vintage. And accumulated, yeah. So you got exposure to technology at an early age, and... Really, we're lucky enough to grow with technology. I think a lot of people who get into the field today sometimes don't appreciate the whole history and the rapid evolution of technology. It's just, it's just, it's, mm-hmm. it's astounding. Yes, it is, and and the law has always been slow to keep up with the technological developments as we're seeing now with uh, data privacy issues on the forefront and with companies like Facebook operating as de facto media companies, etc. But I suspect, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that most of your listeners are likely owners of small businesses or they work in small businesses that need to protect their intellectual property and, and might not know how to begin doing so. That, that, I might have an I idea, but maybe need a little more specifics. I think that's accurate, and the, the other target mm-hmm. audience really are startup businesses mm-hmm. or people who are have an idea and are thinking about starting a mm-hmm. business. So, yes, I think you're correct. And probably the place to start is the general question, what is intellectual property anyway? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't have a patent, so... This isn't really relevant for me, right? Well, I think it's relevant to anybody who operates a business because intellectual property is like any other property, an asset of a business. And like any other asset of a business, if you don't take proper steps to protect it, you're not going to maximize its value and you may lose it. And what's the result of that? Well, a uh, failure of your business to thrive. 
So it's, it's absolutely critical that businesses, including startups, and I help many startups, understand how important it is to protect their intellectual property. But first, they have to understand what it is. Exactly. I think the operating assumption should be that you have it, because the term encompasses a broad range of things. And a fundamental definition is that it's, it's any product of the human intellect that the law protects from unauthorized use by others. So it permits the owner to gain recognition and benefit financially from what they invent or create. And of course, this could be licensed to others so that others can help the owner gain revenue and expand the the owner's business. Well, so just let me jump in here really quickly. So I think most people think about a patent, okay, so you buy a product and it says patent pending or it has the patent number. And I think Mm -hmm. people intuitively understand that. So what are some kinds of things that might be intellectual property of a business that maybe people don't think about? Yes, patents are, are one element of intellectual property. And under the law, intellectual property is typically divided into four broad categories. One are our patents, two copyrights, three trademarks or service marks, and four trade secrets. And I can give you a very quick thumbnail definition of each of those, which will make it understandable, I think. I think that's a perfect place to start. Well, a patent is essentially a grant of the exclusive right to the patent holder to prevent others from making, using, importing into the country, and selling the patented invention or innovation for a limited period of time. It's essentially 20 years. Patents last last for 20 years. And while I am not a patent lawyer, I deal with the other intellectual property rights. The five principal requirements for obtaining a patent are that it has to fall within the subject matter of patentability, so you can't patent a law of nature, for example. It has to be useful, so it has to have utility. It has to be novel as compared to the science that in the particular field that came before it. So it has to be a new development. And it has to be non-obvious to someone with experience in that particular area of science or expertise. And you have to describe it to the public so that even though no one else can produce the patented invention, they have to understand how it works. So that achieves the, the public policy goal of patent law, which is to reward inventors, but also to put into the public domain the knowledge about how the invention was put together and that enables others in the particular field to enhance their understanding and and advance the particular field sorry to interrupt but in your experience do do most businesses know when they have something that's patentable or do they sometimes find out only too late that they have well, an idea that's patentable. I'm, both of those things both of those things are relevant things to talk about. And again, I'm I'm not a patent lawyer, but when I'm asked the question and I've discussed this with patent lawyers, you know, how do you know if you've got something that's patentable? Well I'll I'll give an example. If if you've got a software company, for example, and you've got a very knowledgeable developer and he or she is putting together a particular process for how a particular program should work, 
And they know from their knowledge and experience in the field that no one has done this before or they've never seen anybody do it in this particular way, then that's a key that you've got something that's worth exploring the, the patentability of. That's if you want to spend the money to get a patent. There are other ways, less expensive ways, to protect intellectual property. And with that example of, say, uh, a software program, I could go on and describe the other aspects of intellectual property that could be used to protect it short of patent protection. Because with many startups in particular, patents can, can cost several thousands of dollars. And they may be worth exploring, but they may be cost prohibitive, especially for a lot of startup companies. Yeah, well, and, and, and that, that, I think that's especially true as the world has gotten smaller and the markets have expanded. A lot of companies, particularly with the Internet these days, they don't just sell. Well, we're here in the U.S., but they don't just sell into the U.S. They may sell into other countries, at which point they have to think about protection in other countries, too, which is probably a whole separate radio show all by itself. That's right, because intellectual property protection is typically national in scope. And there are international treaties by which the member countries cooperate and agree to protect the patents of other member countries' nationals to the same extent that their own citizens' intellectual property is protected. But for purposes of our discussion, I think we should talk about rights in the U.S. I agree. Yeah, so before I interrupt to talk about some of the other buckets of intellectual property, which I think you wanted to get to. Mm Mm-hmm. For most companies, I think they should assume that they have intellectual property that's worth protecting. So apart from patents, there are copyrights, trademarks and service marks, and trade secrets. And while a patent and a trade secret, which I'll get to soon, are ways to protect ideas and concepts, a copyright protects the particular way in which that idea is expressed in tangible form. So let's say I have an idea for a business process that no one else knows about. That's potentially protectable by patent law, although the criteria for protectability are sometimes difficult to meet. And it's also protectable by under trade secret law to the extent that the idea is kept secret. It gives the owner a competitive advantage and uh, and no one else knows about it. But copyrights are different because they don't protect ideas, but they protect the way the idea is expressed. So, for instance, taking the software program as an example, the concepts underlying the way that the software is coded, the ideas, the intangibles, are protected potentially by patent law and trade secret law. But the machine-readable code... The source code. In other words, either the source code or the machine-readable code, the object code... That is protectable by copyright law because it is fixed in a tangible form of expression. So that means that if it's, say, for example, on a CD-ROM, if someone were to copy that CD without authorization, that's an infringement of the owner's copyright. Or let's take the case of the source code. Let's say the source code is capable of being contained in a printed document maybe even a PDF or something, because the source code is the human-readable expression of the machine instructions, and somebody copies that, then that's copyright infringement, and it's likely that that is kept secret because the source code is so valuable 
to the company that owns it that uh, that if someone has it without authorization, it's likely by uh, improper or illegal means, which could mean that it's theft of a trade secret, or perhaps less likely, because typically patents are not obtained for software, although sometimes they are, it could be infringement of a patent. So, so think of it this way. Copyright protection extends to music, to books, to love sonnets. You wrote your significant other in college. It could be anything. The intro Any, music to my radio shows. That's exactly right. And that can branch off into a discussion which is always important for my business customers. Well, who owns it? Who would own that music? Who owns that piece of code? Is it you, the, the company for which it was developed? Or is it the particular, in your, in your example, is, is it the musician who was hired to put that music together? Is it the artists? Or is it... Uh, the people whose voices were appear in the, uh, in the music. So anyway, yeah. a whole bunch of questions in there. That's right. So if you're a business, anything that, that can be fixed in a tangible form of expression, printed materials, software video productions, etc., is protectable by copyright law. So is it, is it an email? Is that copyrighted if I write an email with somebody else in my company? Well, that's a very interesting interesting question, and, the, and it sort of goes to the issue of, of what are the limits of copyright protectability. It has to be an original expression, and there may not be enough of that in a particular email to rise to the level of, co- of copyright I've certainly protection. written a so, lot of emails that didn't really. Yeah. So, for, you know, so, for example, if you write an email to me and, and it says, sure, sure, I'll see you for lunch on Thursday, there's not enough there for copyright protection. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly confident well, What do you mean? All that. my emails are genius. Come on. <laughs> However, you know, if you write a detailed recitation of your thoughts on a particular right, subject, a summary of the case law, or you know, we as lawyers are always writing emails to clients, just saying, right. "Here's our thoughts on this. Here's what, here's what recent cases seem to say. Here are the arguments for and against right. a particular position." I guess that's copyright protected well yes but it's probably a copyright that's never going to be enforced and never going to be discussed so well that's true that that's a thorny issue actually and probably not a great example for us to talk about now because it's an interesting one but it's very very complicated all right i'll take an easier example that's maybe more relevant to some of your listeners yeah let's say for example a business owner has a website and they spent a fair amount of time describing their product or describing the particular business solution or business problem that their product or service provides a solution for. And their competitor, wishing to save time and money, lifts the text or maybe even some of the images as well from the first party's website and then uses that material in its own website. People copy things on the Internet all the time. Well, it's still illegal, and it's still copyright infringement, but people, but people do it either because they don't know what the law is or they're lazy, and it's convenient, and it's easy to do it. I bet that starts to get into some real gray areas, because what if I take the idea and I wordsmith it? You know, what piece of it is the essence of 
the protectability. I mean, is it the value proposition for my company or my idea? Is it the way I've positioned the brand in the marketplace or is it the actual words? And, and, and besides which, everything, I'm convinced there aren't really that many original ideas out there. Most people just read a bunch of stuff and regurgitate it in, in some revised format. I mean, if you look at even at websites out there, after a while they all start to sound the same, right? Well, as you say, there there is a lot of copying. But that's not to say that the person who first created the material, whatever it may be, is not entitled to protect it or that the law doesn't protect it. The law expresses the form in which an idea is expressed. And this gets back to the question you were asking. The idea itself is not protected by copyright law, but the particular way in which that idea is expressed is. So it is the words that are protected. It's the images that are protected. In the case of a software program, it may even be the particular structure, design, and organization of the program's commands, etc. But because copyright doesn't protect ideas, that means that for a business, it's critical to understand what ideas are being presented to the public and what are the ideas that should remain secret and only be revealed under the protection of a confidentiality agreement, for example. And it often presents a conundrum for businesses trying to sell their services because they want to entice a customer into hiring that business because of the expertise they have and the particular novel and effective approaches they may have, but they can't disclose that much about it during the sales process because it would reveal their confidential processes and techniques and what gives them a competitive advantage. And wow. I think okay, so a lot of great nuggets in that. Maybe a good place to start in terms of bringing it to something really practical is to talk about the kinds of things that companies might have that would be part of their intellectual property, maybe sure, that they don't sure. even think about. Because, you know, it's one thing for lawyers who are experienced in this area to spend time with the business and say, oh, you know, you probably don't realize that, but that's a trade secret. Mm-hmm. I, my guess is is that a lot of entrepreneurs and small business people are very good at delivering whatever product or service they do and run mm-hmm. their business effectively, mm-hmm. maybe serve clients really well, but maybe aren't very well equipped to be able to look at their business and say, oh, I have this intellectual property, I need to protect it. So, I mean, what are some of the kinds of things that, in your experience, businesses don't even think about or oftentimes don't think about, but that would be part of their intellectual property that they might want to think about? That's an excellent question. But I just want to say that we didn't get through our list of defining really briefly what the other types of IP rights are. So, right. so, well, so we've uh, got trademarks remaining and trade secrets. Okay. And, and if I, I could give that real quick treatment, then we'll try to answer. I agree with that. I got okay. so excited and so into what you were talking about that I neglected that. I just have to say that whenever I hear the word exciting and intellectual property in the same sentence, I'm sure anybody else 
who hears it, their eyes are probably rolling. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, in a, <laughs> I'm, a, okay. I'm a lawyer, too, so, right. you know. So for I, you and I, this well, is okay. interesting stuff. So I, actually, apologies to our audience. No, no. I, not I'm, very I'm, exciting I'm, stuff. But. I, actually, actually, it is, because it gets to the fundamental nature of the, and the excitement of building a business. You've got something. You're excited about it. If you're an entrepreneur, that's why you've started a business. You want to get it out there in the world. You want to be successful and make money. You have things that are protectable that you as a business owner have come up with, and you need to protect them. And so the other categories are trademarks, service marks, the name of your business, something really unique that you as a business owner think is going to gain some attention. And it's the name or symbol or design, think of the Nike Swish, any logo that when someone sees it, they're going to immediately know it's your company. When they see it on a product or service, they're going to know that hopefully they can trust it because your company has a good reputation and it has value. So perhaps for a lot of startup businesses, maybe this is thinking too far ahead, but it's reasonable to think about it. If your name or your trademark or your principal service mark, the name of your product, becomes extremely successful, then that name has value. And if you ever go to sell your company one day and the buyer sees that you have not protected it by registering the trademark or service mark to secure your ownership rights, well, um, you can watch the selling price of your company scroll down when, when wow. that fact is revealed or discovered, because of course, it's a matter of public record whether you've registered the mark or not. So, well, what about uh, what about uh, what about my tagline? Is that is that part of it too? Well, it can be a slogan can be protectable, absolutely, because it can serve to distinguish your products or services from those of others in the marketplace. Or, so, be, yes. or even be part of the logo in some cases. That's right. It. It's something unique that when a customer sees it, you know they'll think of it. One that comes to mind right now, you know, the the old Solozzi Edelson Chevrolet in the Chicagoland area. They used to say, the owners, where you always save more money. <laughs> and and people know that. You know, they, they've seen it on TV for decades. So something like that. That's, you know, that's just a, just a local example. So it, it's important when a company launches in the marketplace to have done the homework to determine whether the name that they're going to be marketing under, for which they're spending a whole lot of money on advertising and marketing materials, is available. And there's a process for doing that. It involves hiring a lawyer. I don't recommend that people do it themselves. And when clients ask me if they can do it themselves, I tell them, well, you know, you could also try your own dentistry. But, <laughs> you know, but, don't, but, but don't expect optimal results. <laughs> All right, so I have a bunch of questions related to that, too, of things you've touched on, which is whether you know you actually you have an original name and registering it, but mm-hmm. let's, let's go back and then talk about trade secrets, the last sure. of the four buckets, and then, yes. then I'll come back and ask you some of the questions about trademarking, too. Okay, good. Well, a trade secret is defined under Illinois law, and, uh, and this is consistent with just about every other state's definition of a trade secret because there's a uniform statute that most states have adopted. Yeah, a trade secret can be anything, any information, like a formula, a pattern, 
a compilation, a program, a device, a method, a technique, or process, and I'm reading from the statute, that one, derives independent economic value, actual or potential, from essentially not being known or readily ascertainable by others who can obtain economic value from it. And two, and this is the key, this is a key part, it has to be the subject of reasonable efforts to, to maintain its secrecy. So that means don't reveal your trade secret in your brochures. That means that you have your employees sign confidentiality agreements to protect the trade secret. That means that you don't leave reports and documentation out in the open which describe the trade secret so that anybody visiting your company could see them, etc. That means if you're a manufacturing operation that you don't have the machinery used in producing your product in a particular way viewable from the see-through chain link fence outside your factory. Right, and you don't leave production drawings laying around Exactly. In, in public areas and things like that. Exactly. Well, so I, I think the probably the most famous and recognizable trade secret would be the Coke formula, right? That's, yeah, that's that. sort of the classic where there's no patent filed on it. Maybe they could have patented it, but mm-hmm. they chose not to because they didn't want to put it out there in any shape or form, so they chose to protect it as a trade secret, which is something that is almost legendary in how they've taken steps to protect it, right? That is absolutely right. And it's probably uh, the most well-known example of successful use of a trade secret. And I don't know the story behind how they made their decision to rely on trade secret protection versus patent protection. I don't know whether it was a conscious decision or not, but it turned out In hindsight, to have been, yes, a genius decision, because I think back then the the duration of a patent was 17 years. Now the duration of a patent is 20 years. But as you said, that protection expires, and after that period is done, anybody can use the formula, which, as we said earlier, if it's uh, the subject of a patent, it has to be disclosed publicly. Anybody could use that formula, which is described in the patent, after the patent expires, whereas with a trade secret, its protection is potentially indefinite because it remains a trade secret as long as you protect it. Now, and that's now a key a- piece that I see a lot of businesses don't really think through sometimes. Obviously, what Coke has done is pretty amazing, and they've devoted, I'm sure, a lot of time and effort to buttoning down and keeping it protected, which is not an easy thing to do in today's environment. But, you know, a lot of a lot of businesses, maybe they don't have something as valuable as Coke formula, but I think that's a, a, something that businesses probably often don't spend enough time thinking about how to protect, would be, would be my guess. Right. And any kind of business can have, can have a trade secret, whether it's the way a particular finish perhaps is applied to a manufactured part like a screw or a bolt in a way that enables that finish to remain intact on the product, notwithstanding friction that it may be exposed to. It could be something like that in a manufacturing context, or 
It could be the source code for a software program. In my experience dealing with software companies, they made the decision to rely exclusively on trade secret protection as opposed to patents because they wanted that longer duration of protection. And they were very smart, process-oriented people who made it a point of implementing in their company very strict controls over the source code and who had access to it. And they were insistent in their contracts with their customers, which were large Fortune 500 companies, which, of course, attempted to whittle down any legal protection in their license agreements. They were insistent on maintaining the protections for their confidential information and and trade secret and not agreeing, for example, that that the confidentiality obligations would expire Mm. over after a limited period of time and and certainly not providing access to the source code, which except perhaps under certain circumstances pursuant to a source code escrow arrangement, which you mentioned to me before you might you might want to talk about, but but I'll leave that up to you. Well, I'm thinking the area of trade secrets is one that there is just a tremendous amount to, to talk about because, as you mentioned, in today's environment, there's source code and programming and technology aspects to so many products and services out there that I think it's, a, it's an area we could probably talk about for an hour just by itself. So... Maybe first, I just want to go back to some of the trademark questions that you mm-hmm. raised. Because I have had a, a couple of clients in the past and friends and colleagues ask me, how do I know if the name for my business or the, the idea for my logo is original enough that I can claim it as mine? So, Mm -hmm. you know, anybody who's tried to register a domain name, it's astounding. You start typing in, you think, no one's ever thought of that. Oh, it's taken, you know, other than dot something you've never, ever heard of. So That's right. um, Right. So how do you, first of all, how do I know if it's really original and whether I'm Mm -hmm. stepping on somebody else's toes out there that I Mm -hmm. I don't even know who they are or where they are? Right. Well, you know, you raise a number of a number of questions there, and I'll try to knock them down one by one. The question of originality really goes to the question of, in part, is it a good trademark or is it sort of lousy, and and which means that it's not going to necessarily distinguish your product or service from others, and that's a marketing decision more than anything else, because trademarks involve uh, psychology, obviously, because you're trying. You're trying with your trademark. Or your brand, yeah. Or your brand. We, well, and a trademark essentially is is the brand. You're trying to develop in the consumer's mind a particular image or connotation, hopefully a positive one, regarding <laughs> your business. So a lot of my trademark clients say really struggle with coming up with a good name. And the reason for that is that it's hard. And, of course, there are marketing and advertising consultants and brand consultants who, who, uh, who make their living advising clients on what would be a good mark for their company. In my opinion, hopefully something uh, without the word extreme or turbo or one in it. <laughs> you know, you, I've noticed over the years that there are just way too many of those. So there's that aspect of it. But the question I think you're, 
you're really getting at, and from a legal standpoint, is how do you determine its availability? And the answer to that is by doing a trademark search. And doing a trademark search typically means hiring someone with the expertise to do what is considered a, an acceptable and current standard best practices trademark search. There are companies that do this, like uh, CompuMark. They have a product called the U.S. Full Availability Search, which I advise all my trademark clients to authorize me to obtain for them because it provides the fullest picture available of what's out there in terms of potentially confusingly similar marks, which may present the risk of an infringement claim. Right. There's nothing, there would be nothing worse than designing a logo, coming up with the name, doing a domain registration, and then having a letter come in that says, you're infringing on us. So. Oh, yeah. 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 Ooh, and I can't tell you how many times I've gotten a call asking me for a rush search on a particular mark because their brand consultant has just come up with it and they love it. They've just gotten the CEO's buy-in. And, and my question is, which I state in the most polite way I'm capable of, why didn't you call me before oh, you got the management buy wow. this? Yeah, <laughs> I know. But, you know, that's well, how much coffee I, I've had. But, oh, that's funny. So the best practice is, you know, figure that out ahead of time. You know, so know before you get management's buy-in on whether on whether to go forward with it, figure out what's available. And the better brand consultants will advise on this. Many of my clients, they don't use brand consultants. They come up with a name or term themselves. And what I also tell my clients is first do a Google search yourself. Yes. See what you find. You know, see what you find in the first few pages of results. Right. If you don't come up with anything that looks like it may be used for a similar business and is similar to your mark, then go on to the next step. And simultaneously with doing a Google search, also look at the USPTO database, United yeah. States Patent and Trademark Office, that lists, that gives you access to the trademark register that shows registered trademarks and service marks and applications for trademarks and service marks. Now, yeah. it, an important limitation in that, though, is that it doesn't show unregistered marks, which can still be protected by law in the geographic areas in which they are used, whereas the CompuMark search that I mentioned does show those marks. And they search a number of other databases, uh, internet uses of the mark. And I mentioned CompuMark. I use them because they've been around forever and they're very reliable but there are many other companies that provide this service as well but i also recommend consulting with a trademark lawyer in the selection process because not all words or terms or acronyms are protectable and to give an example of one that i was looking at just the other day the term crm as part of the name of a software program customer relationship well, management right right well there are many, many marks on the trademark register for CRM software that contain the term CRM. Well, that's come to be known as in the industry as a, as a descriptive term by which that category of software product is known. So it's no longer, it's no longer protectable. Uh, so the letters are yeah. no longer protectable. So, so if it's in the Urban Dictionary, it probably can't be trademarked because it's already out there somewhere. 
just yeah, I'm, maybe, I'm yeah. being a little silly, probably, but, but not. But that's probably right. That that's probably right. And to the extent that it's become common parlance in the industry that you, as a business owner, operate in, you probably don't want to use it as a trademark or service mark because it 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 will be a pretty weak one, assuming that it is entitled to any trademark protection at all. And so, that means that on the opposite end of the spectrum, terms that are completely made up or coined, such as the word Kodak or Exxon, and uh, I would say Google, but it actually is a thing. That's, I think that's why you see a lot of companies today coming up with these these words, you know, even like the old company you work for, Accenture. What is that? Right. Don't that's know, right. but it's just, you know, it's a... A jumble of a couple of words that have a, the right kind of sound and with the help of some branding exactly. kind of get you something, but it's not, it's clearly not trademark because it doesn't mean anything other than a, somebody decided to put a couple words together, right? Yes, which means that it's a very strong, strong trademark. So that's the opposite end of the spectrum. Those terms that don't mean anything can be potentially very strong trademark, but only because the company that owns them has the ability to spend millions millions of dollars in advertising in order to create that association between that word and their company. Because otherwise, what is somebody going to think when they see the word Accenture? Without Nothing. the advertising behind it, they won't know what it's that gobbledygook is. until the right. brand people start and advertising people start doing their job. But how similar or dissimilar does it have to be? You know, for example, there's United Airlines and United Van Lines. So, right. I mean, they're both United. People talk about United, but right. how did how did mm-hmm. they do that? That's an easy question to ask, but a very complicated one to answer because it it relies on decades and decades and decades of case law from disputes on that issue to determine where the boundaries are. And there they, there is a set of criteria that has developed over time as a result of a couple of cases, and it varies, just to make things more complicated for lawyers, it varies by federal circuit to some degree, but essentially they're the same principles. And I'll recite them by memory to the extent I can in a, in well, a very well, but, uh, limited but, but fashion. But doesn't it kind of boil down to the fact you're not likely to confuse a moving van company with an airline? That is one of the key, one of the key principles. That's right. So the question with regard to that element in the infringement test is whether the consumer would be likely to think that a moving company would also be in the airline business or that an airline business would also be in the moving in the moving business and the answer there is no well it wasn't it, at it's the no time those it marks was, independently exist yeah it wasn't at the time although in today's environment with internet companies getting into financial services and media companies getting into all sorts of things it, it does make you wonder a little bit, doesn't it? Well, that's one reason this is a complicated area, and um, and you know, and and you're raising many interesting issues of how the answer may and sometimes so often is gray. We lawyers know that we live in a world of in a world of shades of gray, not black and white. Our clients wish the world were black and white when they talk to a lawyer and and expect an answer, but it's very 
difficult to give that answer. I'm trying to give examples of, of black and white to make things easier for discussion purposes. For sure. But, yes, those are excellent questions, and your raising them illustrates how the law advances as business advances, and, you know, these questions come to fore, like an Internet company getting into financial services. You know, would the public expect that to happen such that if they saw a mark for an Internet company and a financial services company, they might think that they were from the same company. So, yes, trademark law involves sometimes complicated analyses and comparisons between the two marks in questions. And some of the factors are how similar are the marks. If they're very similar, then the respective goods and services offered by each company don't need to be that close, but just related to one another. Whereas if the marks are only arguably similar or tangentially related in some fashion, but the services are right on and they're the same, then would that still constitute infringement? Mm. So Tough these questions. kinds of yeah, they are tough questions. Well, and, and that's why and they need experienced IP lawyers like you, Eric. It's it sounds like a very productive area of the law where there're just endless questions and probably more questions than answers in many cases. And sometimes, you know, all you can do is go on is go on what the probabilities are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an uncertain world and the law provides guidelines. And if you have a trademark-related issue, you know, I, I think the best advice is to talk to someone who's got experience in it and, um, and deal with it that way. In other words, don't do your own dentistry. Um, <laughs> well, but, so we, we are rapidly running out of time. I wish oh, there are a million questions that I could ask you. Maybe we'll have to have you come back on for a reprise visit to dig into a couple of these. But let's talk just about some best practices. I think you touched on some of them, but as kind of a wrap-up, just Mm -hmm. give business owners some guidelines of things based on your years of oopses and things that you've seen go wrong and go right. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll start with a few general basic principles. It's better to take care of these kinds of issues, meaning understand what you have, what intellectual property you have that has value or potential you, and then take step to protect it. And a good intellectual property lawyer can can help you get your arms around that pro- that process. And it's better to do it in the early stages of a company's development than afterwards, where you're sort of playing catch up. And then you realize that you haven't protected your IP, and maybe somebody else has gotten out yeah. there, and uh, and the and the, cat, and the and the cattle are already out of the uh, out of the corral, which is not a place to be in. That's exactly right, because you know you may attempt to enforce a trademark against an infringer, and then they'll come back with a defense that they've been using it for the last five years, and they haven't heard from you, and now they've got widespread uh-huh. use. And, and you haven't registered your trademark, or maybe you did, and you allowed the registration to lapse, yeah. etc. So you know, people get very busy, and and sometimes they neglect these things. But that's uh, but that's to their peril, their company's peril. Right. And the other the other point I would make, especially for startups, is don't ignore this stuff. You know, budget ahead of time for the need to do this. I've had many many conversations with startup companies and. They say, yeah, they want to do all these things, but, you know, sorry, we don't, we don't have it in our budget to pay right. for it. Well, 
then uh, I'm sorry too, but uh, it's not going to happen then. You have to do this. It's like having a warehouse full of goods. And not insuring and, them or something. Yeah, or, uh, or not having locks on your doors and, right. and, and, not, and not insuring them. All right, so Eric, if people have questions, how can they reach you? I very usefully have a telephone, and, and my number is 847-562-0099, I'll be happy to answer anyone's questions, and uh, I take questions by email to eric at Freeburn Law, and that's E-R-I-C, at not a place to be in a good a well good one right anyway. because uh, that's exactly right because um you know you may attempt to enforce uh, a trademark against an infringer and then they'll come back with a defense that they've been using it for the last five years and they haven't heard from you and now they've got widespread <laughs> use and and you haven't registered your trademark or maybe you did and you allowed the registration to lapse yeah. etc so you know people get very busy and and sometimes they neglect these things but that's uh, but that's to their peril um their company's peril right. and the other the other point that i would make especially for startups is um don't ignore this stuff you know budget ahead of time for the need to do this i've had many many conversations with uh with startup companies and and uh, they say, yeah, they want to do all these things, but, you know, sorry, we don't, we don't have it in our budget to pay right. for it. Yeah. Or, well, then uh, I'm sorry, too, but uh, it's not going to happen then. Right. You know, you, you, right. you, have, you have to do this. It's like, it's like having a warehouse full of goods. And not insuring and, them or something. Yeah, or, uh, or not having locks on your doors and, right. and, and, not, and not insuring them. You're yeah. right. All right. So, Eric, if people have questions, how can they reach you? Um, I, I very usefully have a telephone, and, and my number is 847-562-0099, I'll be happy to answer anyone's questions, and uh, I take questions by email to Eric at Freeburn Law, and that's E R I C at F R E I B R U N Law. Eric at F R E I B R U N Law, and my website is at freeburn dot com. Okay. So F R E I B R U N dot com. Well, I so, think uh, hopefully, you. yeah, hopefully people have realized in the time that's just flown by how complicated this area is, but also how important. So. Eric, thank you so much for being a guest My on our pleasure. show today. It was My great pleasure. having thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome, and thank you, too, for the opportunity. Well, we'll let Eric go here and wrap up really quickly. You can find more helpful information and resources on my law website, com or my consulting site, globalocityservices.com, where there's all sorts of free blogs and tools and podcasts and other resources. Be sure to join us next Saturday when our studio guest will be Tom Dennison. 
He is the founder of an accelerator with a very unique business model called Smart Health. And he'll be here to talk live in the studio about how he came up with this concept and the kinds of companies that he helps accelerate and grow and some of the challenges that he's faced and some of the successes as well. It'll be a great interview, I promise. So don't miss it. And until then, folks, happy entrepreneuring. 